0: From Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. While the push towards a voice to parliament continues, decisions are still being made about the lives of Indigenous people. Mines continue to open on traditional lands. In states around the country, the age of criminal responsibility remains as young as 10 years old. And the gap is not closing. There are plenty of things that governments across the country could be doing right now to improve the lives of Indigenous Australians. Today, contributor to the Saturday paper, Ben Apatangelo, on why governments can't get away with saying the voice is the only answer. It's Tuesday, June 13.
1: On every measure, there is a gap between the lives of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and the national average. A voice for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander
2: Australians is the best chance we have. Everyone walked side by side. And that's how we changed this country for the better. How we made history.
0: So Ben, as you've been listening to the conversation around the Voice to Parliament over the past few weeks, what have you been thinking about the Yes campaign and the Labor government and and their talking points?
1: Yeah, it's been a mixed messaging from my perspective. At times there's speaking out of the left side of the mouth and then within a couple of breaths it's speaking out of the right side of the mouth. And I think what's happening at a grassroots level as this discourse becomes even more violent, even more nauseating, even more unrelenting, if that's even possible, is that there's Indigenous people on the ground that are becoming aware that putting all your eggs in the voice basket isn't necessarily the roadmap towards freedom. In the conversations that I'm having at a micro level, it's more so about what can we do you know, within our communities, within our regions? How can we revitalise that politics of yesteryear that brought so much significant change and progress? How can we seek to redevelop, revitalise those doctrines? From my vantage point, as I said, it's not about what people are saying. It's more so about what, you know, this government and other state governments that in a pact support the voice, you know, what they're doing and, Yeah, when I look at that, I see a violent continuation of 230-odd years of domination. Um, I don't see any ceasefire. I don't see the contempt that this place has for Indigenous people being curbed. I just see more of the same. Mm.
0: Okay, well, let's dig down a bit into that, what it is that the Labor government is doing when it comes to, to policy that affects Indigenous Australians and, I suppose, conversely, what it isn't doing that could improve lives.
2: Yeah,
1: there's an archive of examples that... And we're not looking back through history. I mean, what I'm looking for in this moment is, you know, within this term of government, um, you know, over the last couple of months, you've seen, you know, Tanya Plibersek Greenlight, the Perdaman Fertiliser Plant on the Burrut Peninsula and sacrifice one of the world's most profound archives, the Murajuga. You know, it's no surprise
2: that in any group you'll sometimes have divergent views. In this case, um, I've gone with the views of the the group that has been set up for some years now to be the legal and cultural authority for the area, representing the five traditional owner groups.
1: We're seeing fracking in the Beedaloo Basin, which goes against the demands, the wishes, the aspirations of traditional
2: owners. It is clear that the government has not done a proper job of making sure every young people understand the huge impact fracking will have on our country.
1: We've got the petrochemicals plant in the Darwin Harbour, which again is without the consent or without consultation of Larrakia traditional owners.
0: Plans for a taxpayer-funded petrochemical precinct on Darwin Harbour could increase the risk of cancer and heart disease in nearby suburbs.
1: Labor's reform the cashless debit card back to its original roots, which means that income management is almost an exclusive function for Aboriginal and Torres Islander people, as they designed. Labor went to the recent
2: election, pledging to end the card, saying it stigmatised people and failed in its bid to help them off welfare. But locals aren't happy they've had no say in the matter. They put us on without no permission, and uh, they're going to take, take us off again without
0: no permission from us.
1: There's just so many examples over the last, you know, 12 to 18 months that really stand out. And that's before we even start to touch on, you know, the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, which is sitting dormant, Um, you know, the Bringing Them Home Report, which continues to collect dust. There's just a litany of examples that, you know, entirely undermine the entire premise and promise of The Voice.
0: Mm. And when you talk about those kinds of Examples, what do you see flowing on from them? What do you see in terms of the very real kind of outcomes of those policy decisions that have been made?
1: Yeah, well, I I mean, what it is doing is continuing to attack the heart of Indigenous communities. It's continuing to, you know, undermine their aspirations, their sovereignty. And, you know, it's a concerted attempt and a conscious decision to further strip. Indigenous peoples of the things that sustain them. I mean, if we think about Murajuga and, you know, the government striking the right balance, as they say, in sacrificing, again, one of the world's oldest living archives that holds, you know, the earliest expressions and creative thoughts, um, you know, for a 6.5 billion gas-guzzling fertiliser plant. Like, what does that do to Indigenous peoples of that area. That land is them, they are the land. So, you know, continuing to dominate those environments is a concerted effort to continue to dominate the peoples. So, you know, I see these acts and these policies consciously looking to, you know, keep Aboriginal and Torres people under government control.
0: But one of the things that the Yes campaign claims is that constitutional recognition would lead to real improved outcomes. So the argument goes that by being able to use a voice to parliament, Indigenous people would therefore have a say on the policies that impact them. So policies like some of the ones that you've just mentioned, things like income management, policies around justice and imprisonment and we would therefore, if there was a voice, start to see changes and presumably improvements. So what do you make of that case that's made?
1: It's um, very speculative and I don't think it's actually grounded in as much truth as people suggest it is. I mean, all of these examples that I've provided you um, stem from reports, government-initiated reports Governments know that traditional owners don't want these companies dominating their lands. They're taking them to the courts. Like, we've been telling governments from every angle what it is that we want, specifically with those examples that I've provided you. We've used every mechanism, every depository. They know exactly what it is, whether it's been told to them from the front of Parliament House, from the top of a cop car, from a young child with a spit hood, you know, sitting in solitary confinement, in royal commissions, in other government initiated inquiries and reports. I mean, to suggest that they don't know what we want as is, is a myth. And I think on top of that, the whole theory of change of nothing about us without us doesn't hold as much water as those that are pushing the Yes campaign suggest, because the Solicitor General's advice was clear that You know, a voice to Parliament would not, well, Section 129 would not impose any obligations upon the executive government to follow representations of the voice or to consult with the voice prior to developing any policy or making any decision. Furthermore, Danny Gilbert, who is the co-chair for Australians for Indigenous Constitutional Recognition, said in a submission to the Joint Select Committee, that the provision imposed is not a legally enforceable constitutional obligation to either establish or maintain the voice. So those two examples from prominent legal minds who, you know, suggest that, you know, the government isn't obliged to listen, to engage, to respond, you know, to the voice once it's established and particularly when we know that governments consistently ignore the evidence base that is, that is in front of them.
0: We'll be back in a moment. The Every Moment Matters campaign provides accurate, evidence-based information and advice about alcohol, pregnancy and breastfeeding. It has been created by the Foundation for Alcohol Research and Education and endorsed and funded by the Australian government. Alcohol use during pregnancy can lead to Fetal Alcohol Spectrum Disorder, or FASD, a lifelong disability. So make the moment you start trying The moment to stop drinking. Visit everymomentmatters.org.au to find out more.
2: For long-time editor Winnie Dunn, there were a few rules she followed when writing her debut novel.
0: I really don't subscribe to writing for the sake of, you know, trauma dumping or getting your trauma out. That's what a therapist is for. Please, (laughs) please go see a therapist. We're very pro-therapy on research. (laughs) If If that's what you're using writing for.
2: I'm Michael Williams, and on this week's very therapeutic episode of Read This, I chat with Winnie Dunn. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Then you seem to be saying that there is this dissonance between what the Albanese government says that it wants to do, which is improve the lives of Indigenous people by introducing a voice to Parliament, and what it's actually doing, which is to keep or to enact policies that do not do that. Given that, where do you ultimately land right now on the value of having a referendum on a voice to parliament?
1: Yeah, in all honesty and sincerity, um, there's a, a significant dissonance, right? I mean, Anthony Albanese, you know, at a press conference, he's quick to tear up when he's flanked by, you know, prominent Aboriginal voices and people. But a month later, he's, you know, over in the UK and... Kissing the crown that dispossessed us of our lands, that like slaughtered our people, that rounded us up onto missions, that stole our children, you know, and swearing allegiance to that crown. I mean, you know, when Uncle Archie Roach died, or even Sorry Day, which was just over a week ago, there's all of these bold proclamations. I mean, when Unapingu passes away, it's everyone's quick to co opt, you know, these moments and push and nauseatingly and disrespectfully push the voice to Parliament. But You know, Pingu spoke about recognising our rights, which is a very different equation to recognising us as people. So I think there's a lack of sincerity. I think there's a vulgar kind of co-optation of really important moments and what people are saying versus what they're doing doesn't stack up.
0: Right, and it sounds like what you're saying is that you question the sincerity of the intention there?
1: Well, I want to get out of the what, you know, my opinion as and and more so focus on like what's happening and you know objectively with the examples that I've just provided you, it, it very much is the same empire with a different face. I'm very curious about leaning into the doctrines of what is you know just and what is fair, but more importantly, what are indigenous people you know here on this continent, surrounding islands, and other places around the world? What are we deserving of? What are our inherent rights? And you know, does the voice enable us to freely determine our political status and freely pursue our economic, you know, social and cultural development? Does it give us the autonomy to self-govern? Does it give us the ability to maintain and strengthen our political, legal, economic, social and cultural institutions? Like, does it give us the rights to the lands and territories and resources which we were born out of and been in relationship with for the last 100,000 years? I mean, the voice does not do that. And, You know, I don't think that we should be looking at the voice as the be-all and end-all. I know that it is one tool and one mechanism, but I can't see it being a step towards any of those things that we are inherently deserving of.
0: Mm. And... Ben, how do you grapple with talking about the issues that you're identifying with the voice to Parliament in terms of of what it actually promises in the context of this bigger debate that's happening in terms of the yes and and no campaigns? How how difficult is it to position yourself and your critique in this debate as it becomes more acrimonious?
1: Totally, it's it's very difficult, and I feel like today is one of the first times that in a public setting that other people will listen to that I've felt the freedom and need to speak with my chest out. I mean, I've tried to do as much sitting and listening and thinking and not sort of get warped up into this vortex of discourse that is inflammatory and unhelpful and violent, but it's ultimately the rest of the population that is going to determine the fate of our futures. I still think it's, you know, important as more information has been released and that we have a clearer insight as to not only what's on the table, but more so what this government, right, under the backdrop of the winds of change, like this is a moment where we should have a left-leaning government, if you could even call it that, with the referendum as their primary platform, they should be doing things that at least take the boot off of our neck and not further the stranglehold. So I think there's just been too much evidence that's placed in front of me to no longer, I guess, sit on the sidelines and to contribute in an honest and earnest way that doesn't, you know, further inflame uh, the hyperbole that surrounds, you know, a lot of this conversation.
0: Hmm. Ben, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. As a a 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read POST, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points. Sign up at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters.
2: Also in the news today, Donald Trump has promised he will stay in the race for president, even if he's convicted of a felony, saying, quote, I'll never leave. Trump is facing 37 charges over his possession of classified documents that were stored at his Mar-a-Lago residence. There is nothing in the US Constitution to prevent someone running for president from behind bars. And the WA Department of Justice has been accused of bullying staff who could speak out about conditions at the state's only youth detention centre, Bankshire Hill. One email obtained by the ABC includes a threat of jail time for discussing major disturbances at the site with non-custodial personnel. Conditions for detainees at the centre have previously been found unlawful by the WA Supreme Court. I'm Scott Mitchell, filling in for Ruby Jones for the next couple of days. I'll see you tomorrow.